Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off today. I'm Phil Madding here with Eric Cahill. It's Monday, June 12th, and we are at the beginning of a huge historic week. Former President Trump expected to travel to Miami today ahead of his federal court appearance tomorrow. He's set to be arraigned on 37 felony counts related to his handling of classified information. Local and federal officials say they are ramping up security ahead of the appearance. Sources tell CNN and the far right group, the Proud Boys, are discussing traveling to Florida to show their support for the former president. And hours after the former president's scheduled court appearance, Trump is planning to hold a fundraiser at his golf club in New Jersey. We're also expecting him to speak there before that event. His first public comments about the indictment, though, coming over the weekend at rallies in Georgia and North Carolina. Trump also telling Politico he has no plans to drop out of the 2024 race if convicted, saying, quote, I'll never leave. And Americans are weighing in. They are split about how they feel about the indictment. Nearly half think Trump should have been charged in the case, while almost the same number think the indictment was politically motivated. CNN This Morning starts right now. You know those weeks that start where you just kind of take a deep breath and say, <laughs> This is going to be a week. It is going to be a week. The weeks that almost feel like they have been a week before they've started. There is a lot of anticipation. There are a lot of questions about what will happen in the next 24, 36 hours. It's going to be a week. It's going to be a week. And we have the best team in the business. Indeed, we do. report every moment of it. Our team of reporters and analysts are ready for you, ready for us this morning. We're going to break down all of these angles for you. Elena Treen is in Bedminster, New Jersey. Caitlin Polance is outside the federal courthouse in Miami. That, of course, is where the former president is set to appear. Adi Cornish and Sarah Murray here with us in the studio all morning, as well as Ellie Honig, who will break down the biggest takeaways for us from this indictment. A lot to cover, understandably, this morning. Sarah, if we begin with you, when we look ahead to this high-stakes court appearance, that, of course, is slated for tomorrow, 3 p.m., mm-hmm. uh, in Miami, what can we expect? Well, you know, look, we are expecting Donald Trump to make this initial appearance, and he was pretty candid over the weekend with one reporter saying that, look, nobody wants to be indicted. This is perhaps an honest admission from Donald Trump, but he certainly isn't taking the news of his indictment quietly. Former President Donald Trump on the campaign trail, slamming the 37-count indictment against him that was unsealed Friday. The baseless indictment of me by the Biden administration's weaponized Department of Injustice will go down as among the most horrific abuses of power in the history of our country. Trump, speaking before crowds of supporters in Georgia and North Carolina, railed against the Justice Department and called the investigation into his mishandling of classified documents a witch hunt. Witch hunt, witch hunt, scam, hoax. It's called election interference, and they're doing the best they can with it. Something his former attorney general disputes. This idea of presenting Trump as a victim here, a victim of a witch hunt, uh, is ridiculous. Yes, he's been a victim in the past, but this is much different. He's not a victim here. He was totally wrong 
that he had the right to have those documents. Those documents are among the most sensitive secrets that the country has. But Trump's staunchest allies are rallying to his defense. They're indicting President Trump on Tuesday for having material that he declassified that was protected by the Secret Service. And the people who are doing it is the administration, the Justice Department from his opponent in the upcoming presidential election. Uh, I mean, th this is as political as it gets. The indictment paints a damning picture of a former president who allegedly kept some of the country's most sensitive secrets in unsecure locations throughout his Mar-a-Lago resort, including a ballroom, a bathroom, and a storage room. A far cry from the stance he took as a presidential candidate in 2016. We can't have someone in the Oval Office who doesn't understand the meaning of the word confidential or classified. The documents Trump had in his possession were concerning United States nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the United States and its allies to military attack, and plans for possible retaliation in response to a foreign attack. In an interview with Politico aboard his plane, Trump told a reporter he does not believe he will be convicted, and he doesn't plan on taking a plea deal, though he left open the possibility of doing so if they pay me some damages. Trump is set to travel to Miami later today and appear in federal court there on Tuesday. In anticipation, local and federal officials are ramping up security, and the FBI is monitoring potential threats of violence. We want to make sure uh, that all our citizens know that they're going to be able to um, express their First Amendment rights, and at the same time, uh, we're going to keep them safe and we're going to make sure that there is no uh, disorder. Now, Donald Trump has some logistics to sort out before he shows up at court on Tuesday. He is headed to Miami later today where he is going to meet with some of the remaining members of his legal team. He parted ways with two of his lawyers last week, and he's going to sort out his Florida-based legal team. So a lot to deal with before he shows up at federal court, guys. And we're not letting you leave, so stick around, Murray, because <laughs> we're also expecting Donald Trump to plead not guilty, making very clear that's the case after he surrenders himself tomorrow in Miami. CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance is live outside the federal courthouse where he's expected to appear. And Caitlin, what are we actually expecting over the course of the next 36 hours? Well, Phil, Donald Trump needs to prepare. He's going to be in federal court for the very first time. And so he's going to need to talk to his lawyers a little bit about what to expect, how that proceeding will work and how federal court itself works. It's different than the state court in New York where he was arraigned in a separate criminal case. Uh, and so what he's doing today is he is traveling to Miami. He is going to be meeting with his lawyers when he stays overnight here at a resort he has. And then tomorrow he's going to be coming into court alongside the other other man charged in this case, Walt Nada, his body man, a man who was with him over the weekend. Uh, we're going to have to wait and see whether the judge will allow them to continue being in the same place, communicating with one another as they await trial. It's actually not very typical to allow them to keep talking, uh, but they both will be appearing in court. It might be quite a short proceeding, but we expect them both to plead not guilty tomorrow and then once the legal part of the day is done, Phil, Donald Trump travels back to Bedminster, New Jersey, where he plans to give a political speech. Uh, Caitlin, you are probably the keenest observer of courts and how this all works uh, at our organization. There's speculation this could take years. This could take months, then years. Walk us through how and when this trial, any type of verdict would actually play out. 
Well, we might not know the answer to that right away, Phil, because tomorrow, whenever Donald Trump comes into court, we do expect, based on the court record, that he's going to be in front of a magistrate judge. So just sort of some of the initial things will be taken care of there. But then when he gets in front of the federal district judge, the lifetime appointee Eileen Cannon, who Donald Trump himself appointed, she's going to be able to determine exactly what the timing might be, how long it might take for trial. And Jack Smith, the special counsel, when he spoke the other day after this indictment, he he said immediately, uh, we do want to seek a speedy trial. So there can be a quick trial, a speedy trial, a right that every American has or it can be a complex trial. Now, it's one thing that's unclear here is how much the classified part of this is gonna play into it and how much it drags out. Donald Trump certainly might wanna make that happen. Phil? Yeah, no question. We're gonna get more into Judge Eileen Cannon in a little bit. Kaylin Pullins, stick with us. We'll check back in. CNN Senior Legal Analyst Ellie Hoding joining us from the Magic Wall this morning. So the indictment itself, Ellie, tells a story Walk us through some of the takeaways here. Yeah, Erica, there's so much of interest in this indictment. Really a remarkable document. The first thing that jumped out to me is just how significant and sensitive these documents are. The, the indictment tells us that these were documents created for and by agencies like the CIA, the Department of Defense, National Security Agency, and the Department of Energy. And the indictment actually gives us a real sense of what's in these documents. These documents include information about our defense and weapons capabilities, our potential vulnerabilities to attack United States nuclear programs, and plans for possible retaliation by the United States against other countries. It doesn't get much more sensitive than that, and that matters legally because the first law that Donald Trump is charged under requires that the documents contain national defense information. That's why this is so important. You know, Ellie, it's tough to rank what's the most jarring elements of this indictment, yeah. but one of them has to be some of the photos related to how these documents were actually kept at Mar-a-Lago. Walk people through that. These documents took a wild ride through Mar-a-Lago. At first, when they were brought down, they were stored here. Yes, that is a stage in a ballroom, the white and gold ballroom, where events were still being held at the time. They were then moved out of the white and gold ballroom into the business center briefly, and then their next stop on the Mar-a-Lago tour was, this is a bathroom, a shower and a bathroom in what they call the lake room. They were stored there for some time. And then finally, they were moved to this area, the storage room, which becomes an important part of the story. And at one point, one of Donald Trump's handlers goes in and sees these documents spilled out on the ground, including They've been sort of obscured in the indictment, but including sensitive classified information. So these documents were moved all around in a clearly unsecure environment. So as they're moving all around Mar-a-Lago, do we have an idea of how they were being used, how they were being looked at, how the former president was perhaps using or accessing the documents? So this is one of the most important questions that the indictment answers. What was he doing with these documents? We now know that there were two incidents when Donald Trump used these documents up at Bedminster, his club in New Jersey. This is our, what our team, Paula Reed and team, reported before the indictment came out. This is the most important one. In July of 2021, Trump's meeting with two writers who are working on a book, and he wants to convince them that a certain story that appeared in the media is wrong. And so he is brandishing what appears to be a document, and he says to them, and this is a quote from an audio recording, secret, this is secret information, look at this. See, as president, I could have declassified, now I can't, you know, but this is still a secret. That, to me, is one of the most important pieces of evidence in the case. And then the indictment tells us there's another incident about a month later where Trump shows a classified map 
to a member of a political action committee also at Bedminster. So he's using these documents. He's showing them to other people who do not have security clearance. He's using them to try to shape favorable coverage for himself. So, Ali, there's the National Defense Information, the Espionage Act uh, elements of the indictment. But there's also obstruction in this indictment. What more can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the key moment here happens in May of 2022. DOJ serves a subpoena. They say, you have to give us all of your classified or sensitive documents in Mar-a-Lago. Trump goes out and puts together a legal team, including this lawyer, Evan Corcoran. And he basically says to Evan Corcoran, I'm going to have you search this area of the storage room. That's where the documents are. Corcoran does that. He goes through the storage room and he comes out with 38 classified documents. Corcoran and the team put together a certification saying we've done a diligent search. These are the documents we found. Of course, we know, though, that months later there were over 100 more classified documents found when the FBI went in to do its search warrant. So how could that be? The indictment answers that question. There were, as I said before, documents kept in this storage room. And the indictment tells us that before Evan Corcoran went in, he wouldn't have any way to know this, 64 documents, uh, excuse me, 64 boxes of documents were taken out of the storage room. And then right before Corcoran came in, 30 were taken back. Now we can do the math there. 34 boxes were left out of, removed from and left out of that storage closet before Evan Corcoran went in. And that's why Donald Trump and Walt Nauta are charged with obstruction because they misled the lawyer knowing that the lawyer intentionally or not, and it appears not, would mislead DOJ. So also, Ellie, there were questions about why these charges were filed, why we're talking about Florida at this point. Yeah. It's mostly because of what you just laid out. There's so much in the what of the indictment, but the where is really important, too. DOJ did choose to charge this case in Florida, the right decision legally, but it certainly gives Donald Trump a favorable home venue. His jury pool will be much more favorably inclined towards Donald Trump, just looking at voting numbers. And the judge on this case is Eileen Cannon. We're going to talk about her more later in the show, if I can tease that. But she's been the subject of a bit of controversy because she made a ruling earlier in this case on the special master in favor of Donald Trump that was then reversed by the Court of Appeals. So at the moment, she is the judge, and I think Donald Trump's team is going to be happy about that. All right, Ellie, stay with us. I want to turn now to Audie Cornish, uh, who is here. And outside of the interior design opinions related to bathrooms, <laughs> when you went through this indictment, what, what kind of grabbed your attention? What stood out to you? I think actually I looked at it more holistically in that the entire system is a little bit stronger. I think Jack Smith's indictment kind of reflects, uh, it's a, it has a thoroughness, I think, that people can appreciate after what they saw with Alvin Bragg in New York and even the Mueller report. Uh, the FBI and law enforcement, they're going to be looking for chatter in case people might want to gather or go down to Florida. And people should keep in mind after the January 6th riots, many people were arrested, many people were convicted in some cases for seditious conspiracy. So the entire system, while it seems like it's under siege narratively from the former president, it is stronger. And I think that's reflected in the just sheer thoroughness and the evidence presented in this indictment. They didn't have to put the level of detail in it that they did, but they did because that detail went before Americans in a grand jury who helped make the decision to move this forward. Yeah, broadening it out is important here, particularly given the systemic 
I don't, don't want to say threats, but uh, fractures And there's a lot of stuff degree. flying around about yeah. this is bad, this is tainted, this is spoiled. I think if we keep looking at the facts, what's on paper and why, it will help guide you through the week. Yeah. yeah. Audie Cornish, stick with us. We've got a lot more to come. We have new details on the former president's plans right after he surrenders himself on federal charges and his plans to build a new legal team. We're live in Bedminster ahead. We'll also take a look at the complicated and unprecedented road for his White House run as he is facing two different criminal trials. Our team coverage continues. Stay with us. As far as the joke of an indictment, it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing for this country. I mean, the only good thing about it is it's driven my poll numbers way up. Can you believe this? Way up. Donald Trump vowing to stay in the presidential race over the weekend, even if he's convicted in this classified documents case. Right now, he's at his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. But in a matter of hours, he is set to fly to South Florida, where he is expected to huddle with his legal team before surrendering himself tomorrow in Miami. CNN's Elena Treen is in Bedminster this morning. So what more do we know about uh, what is on the schedule for the former president today? Well, good morning, Erica. Uh, Donald Trump will be leaving his Ben Minster Golf Club soon, and he's expecting to pass just right by here. Uh, and then he'll be heading to Florida ahead of his appearance at a federal court tomorrow at 3 p.m. Now, uh, his team does tell us that he's expected to meet with his Florida-based legal team to discuss a new strategy after he abruptly removed two of his attorneys, Jim Trusty and John Rowley, on Friday, just hours after learning of his indictment. Now, uh, this evening, he will stay at his Doral Resort in Miami, we're told. And then immediately after his appearance tomorrow, he's going to be flying back to New Jersey. He'll host a fundraiser at his golf club and also deliver live remarks. And Erica, we've seen this playbook before. After he was indicted in April in Manhattan, he, uh, after his arraignment, he got back on his plane. He flew to Mar-a-Lago, took to a stage before a crowd of his supporters and railed against the charges. And I'm told we should expect a similar speech tomorrow night where Donald Trump will appear defiant, uh, criticize the special counsel, Jack Smith, and argue that he's a victim of political persecution, Erica. Yes, we know that playbook well. Uh, as we wait for that, um, yeah. it would, I imagine also, because we know the playbook so well, this is going to be a lot of what we did here over the weekend, not just in those comments uh, that were made in an interview with Politico, but also what we saw at those rallies as we wait for that tomorrow, Elena. Um, it is also a fundraiser, we need to point out. This is not just an airing of grievances. It's one that's expected to bring in money. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and you're right. I do think the rhetoric that we'll see tomorrow night will mimic what we saw on Saturday, where he criticized these charges and, again, uh, labeled them as political. But I should note that behind the scenes, the mood is quite different. I've been speaking with uh, several of Donald Trump's aides and allies over the past several days, and they told me that concern has begun to settle in regarding the legal implications of this indictment. And Donald Trump himself told Political in an interview aboard his plane on Saturday that he is worried about being indicted. He said, quote, nobody wants to be indicted. I don't care that my poll numbers went up by a lot. I don't want to be indicted. I've never been indicted. I went through my whole life. Now I get indicted every two months. It's been political. That's what Donald Trump said uh, to Politico over the weekend. And that is what we've heard as well from my conversations with his team. Uh, they've repeatedly told me he doesn't want to be indicted. And it's similar to what we saw when he was impeached. He didn't want to be impeached uh, when he was in office. And so even though he's publicly 
uh, you know, using bravado when he's giving these speeches. Privately, he is concerned about this. All right, Elena Treen, thanks so much. We have Ellie Honig, Audie Cornish, and Sarah Murray back with us. Also with us, senior contributor at Axios, Margaret Talov. Margaret, welcome Thank to you. the team. We are not moving for literally the next <laughs> five days, maybe the next six or seven months. Audie, I want to get at something that I think both Erica and Elena were alluding to. There's a playbook here. We know this. Every time he's had issues, the former president has kind of deployed the same exact airing of grievances and outrage uh, and, and riling up of his people. But I want it's you to... profitable airing of grievances, mm-hmm. though. I yes. think that's important no, to no know, question. right? Yeah, the, like, the fact that the... Yeah, not the, only do you suck up all the air in the room and get earned media, which is all of us covering it, means other candidates are effectively boxed out right. from saying anything that will be meaningfully noted. And you'll be able to pad your coffers in terms of your legal battle, which he needs. Uh, And finally, campaigns are about narrative and story. And we were hearing the first, um, we're hearing the official story going into 2024. His pronouns are you, me, and they. And it's a constant narrative of, I am a proxy for you, and they are out to get us. And I think he's going to be very consistent in that message over the next few months. Can I ask you, though, and I think you alluded to this a little bit earlier, um, this feels different. Like, there's a playbook, yes. This is different than any uh, issue the playbook has ever tried to confront. Do you agree, or does this end up becoming just the same thing we've seen repeatedly over the course of the last seven years? I mean, the stakes get higher and higher. Like, when he says, uh, I'll never leave, take him seriously. Um, and you can, that's what he said, right, mm-hmm. uh, after the election that he lost. That's what he was doing, more or less, heading into January 6th. And now here he is saying that again. I suspect it would be the same if he was elected, right? I mean, he says what he means, and there's no need for us to do what we did six years ago, which is to say, is it figurative? Is it literal? I don't know. It's like, what does it all mean? We now know what it means. And I think more people will be inclined to take it seriously. The question is, is he successful in making people feel like he himself is their proxy and the only litmus test they need going forward? To Audie's point, when, when he says, I'll never leave, yes, absolutely take him literally. And if anyone's thinking these indictments are going to knock him out of the race, oh, no, they are not legally. There is no people, I, I think, reasonably think, well, how you can't run for office if you're indicted, if you're convicted. Yes, you can. Yeah. The only way to stop him is to have impeached him, which they had a chance to do in Congress and decided not to, which could have disqualified him. But an indictment does not prevent someone from running. A conviction does not prevent someone from running. Even a sentence of imprisonment technically does not keep someone from running. So if he's going to be stopped, it's going to be a political question, not a legal question. And this is a hard thing, though, for voters, you know, to sort of digest at this moment, though, because we still don't know a lot about the timeline of how this is going to work out, right? Like, you can, if you're someone who's immediately appalled by the behavior of Donald Trump and you look through this indictment, like, he's already lost you. But if you're someone who's sort of wondering, I mean, what does this mean practically? When could this actually go to trial? When would we know if he's going to be convicted? What if that doesn't happen until he potentially becomes a Republican nominee? What if that doesn't happen until after the vote in 2024? That's a tough thing to sort of put on voters and say, okay, decide how you feel about it with all these unknowns. This is really up right now to the Republican field to counter. That is sort of democracy's first line of defense, uh, if you want to put it that way. And he's got an increasingly crowded field. Uh, he's far and away the front runner, according to all the polling. And this, at least for the moment, has only empowered him and created more of a buffer. But it is not 2016. 
all of these candidates have the benefit of history if they chose to learn from the lessons of history. And the problem for the Republican field is they're split right now. Half are trying to figure out whether to say, this is so terrible, he's being politically prosecuted, and the other half are like, um, <laughs> he stuck a bunch of documents in the bathroom and pretended he didn't. You know, So I think as long as the GOP primary field is divided about what the story is, it's going to be very easy for him to maintain using this to his political advantage, even if he's in legal jeopardy. Well, there's that division. There's also, right, the messaging that we knew started based on the excellent reporting from our CNN teams, the messaging that really started in earnest and reaching out to allies in Washington before the indictment, we even had official confirmation of this indictment. Mm -hmm. We saw that play out, perhaps not surprisingly, over the weekend, Jim Jordan sitting down with Dana Bash. I just want to play part of that exchange from uh, State of the Union. He there didn't. are classified documents in the bathroom in a ballroom stage and classified information that he sh that th we're talking about uh, information that the United States shares with its allies, critical information strewn on the floor. Does that look secure to you? Again, Dana, the standard is the standard. The president of the United States, he can classify and he can control access to national security information however he wants. That's the standard. That's the Constitution. That's what the court said in Navy versus Egan, a 1988 case. I don't know how many more he, times I can say it. Okay, so if he, wants to store, if he wants to store material in a box, in, in a bathroom, if he wants to store it in a box on a stage, he can do that. There are both legal and political yes. questions about that. So, Ellie, let's start with the legal um, how firm is Jim Jordan's legal footing here? Not firm. Yeah. Uh, first of all, Donald Trump is not the president. He's the ex-president. It makes a huge difference. Yes, when you're president, you can do virtually anything you want with these documents, not when you're the ex-president. And notably, the indictment picks up on that because mm -hmm. every the time frame starts in this indictment, 12.01 p.m. on January 20th, 2021. None of what he did when he was president is in play here. The other thing is DOJ charged this case and I think what is an interesting and, and I think smart way. There are about a half dozen federal statutes that govern mishandling of sensitive or classified information. But they chose only one, and they charge it 31 times for each of 31 different documents, that does not say classified or declassified. It says national defense information. So whether those documents were ever classified or ever declassified is technically beside the point here. The phone call to Jim Jordan is also significant. I've interviewed him many times. Obviously, he's very combative. He's very much a good avatar for the, like, punchback mega energy. He also is heading the efforts to investigate um, government overreach and weaponization of law enforcement in Congress. I think the fact that they made that phone call to him is actually a sign of concern because yeah. essentially it's saying, hey, get out there, mm -hmm. help me, start saying stuff. And it's going to be some irony that in a way, they'll be weaponizing government to investigate the weaponizing of government, right? <laughs> yes. They're going to ask. And yet it almost feels perfectly normal. Not in a good way, but, but in some respects not surprising, right, yeah. that they would be this sort of odd loop. Margaret, can I ask you, you know, you made a, a point that I've been fixated on the last week, um, or at least the last five days. It's every week feels like a month at this point. Um, the people he's running against... The candidates he's running against, unable or unwilling to try and utilize this moment to try and knock off the guy who's leading the polls by 25 or 30 points. There has been some reticence to uh, weigh in uh, definitively since the indictment actually came out. Do you see anything that changes that for anyone other than Asa Hutchinson? Uh, well, and, and Chris Christie. Chris, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, a couple of things. Uh, number one is I think uh, as this case proceeds... 
it may make a difference. I mean, it's, I don't think that most of Donald Trump's uh, GOP rivals are looking at this thinking, yes, this is how I would handle classified documents. They're looking at the base and saying the base is firmly with Trump. I can't defeat Trump if I don't run to the right of Trump. And so this rallying cry about, um, you know, the deep state or whatever, it's, it's resonant with a core of that base. And that's what they're concerned to walk away from. So I think part of it is that, and part of it is how Donald Trump conducts himself. If anyone sees an opening, if they think that, um, if, if they see a strategic reason to pursue it, yes. But there's two different lanes. There is the DeSantis lane and there's the, the Chris Christie lane. And uh, I, I don't see Ron DeSantis changing his views about tackling you know, the FBI or the Justice Department. That's already baked into the narrative of his campaign also. So I think there's two different lanes of candidates here. I can't defeat him unless I support him it's, on the <laughs> worst thing that's happened you, to him. Because it's a hell of a strategy. Well, wrong. These Bert, are, you covered the yeah. 2016 campaign. And yeah, it's a great strategy. It's a great strategy to just sit on your stockpile of cash and never take on Donald Trump yeah. directly. And that's why Jeb Bush is president of the United States. <laughs> that's proven infallible. Please clap. Yeah. Please <laughs> Thank you all. Well, law enforcement officials, as we've been talking about, are preparing over concerns for potential violence tomorrow in Miami. What they're doing in terms of ramping up security ahead of that court appearance. And a miracle in the Amazon, a group of children found alive after more than a month. How officials say they survived in the jungle. Uh, back now with the latest developments on Donald Trump's federal indictment. Here's what we know this morning. In just a few hours, the former president will travel from New Jersey to Miami. That, of course, is for his court appearance, which is scheduled for tomorrow. The former president is facing 37 counts relating to his handling of classified documents. The indictment detailing the locations where Trump allegedly stored the boxes, including a ballroom, a bathroom, and even his bedroom. Trump has vowed to never leave the 2024 race. Those um, among some of his first public comments about the indictment over the weekend. He told Politico he won't drop out even if convicted. We're going to keep you up to speed throughout the morning here. We are also following other news developments, including this incredible story. New video overnight. Crews in Colombia rescuing four children who survived 40 days, 40 alone in the Amazon after a plane crash. A state-owned media released this video of a search unit treating the children in the jungle on Friday. Military officials say the kids are now recovering at a hospital in Bogota. A month and a half ago, they were riding in a small plane that crashed into the dense jungle. Their mom, the pilot, and one other adult died. CNN's Stefano Pazaban is live outside of the hospital in Bogota this morning. And this story is... Um, wild to say the least. What more do we know about how the kids are doing, how they survived this long? Yes, uh, Phil, uh, the kids are still in hospital, as you can expect. They're expected to be here for the next two to three weeks. Uh, They're receiving both uh, medical, physical treatment, I mean, but also psychological support. So we can only imagine, Phil, how they are affected by surviving this harrowing experience. I think that the youngest of them is only one year old. She spent her first birthday in, in our world, uh, in the middle of the jungle, she turned one just uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yesterday, Sunday, was a good, it was a great day because it was the first time we spoke with the father of the four children. He has been in the jungle uh, joining the search and rescue operations for the past five weeks. Uh, and here's what he said about never losing hope, uh, even when uh, the stakes uh, were so much against him.
We are indigenous people. I believe in the jungle, which is our mother. And that's why I've always kept the faith and would say that both the jungle and nature have never betrayed me. Thank you. And uh, as I was saying, uh, the kids are expected to stay in hospital for the next uh, two to three weeks. Uh, the father, Manuel Ranocchi, also told us yesterday that he wants to bring them back to the Amazon when they'll be able to uh, get out of the hospital. And also that he expects uh, the president, uh, Gustavo Petro, he urged the president, Gustavo Petro, uh, to uh, support more uh, transportation in uh, the Amazon, to make more investment so that tragedies like this one won't happen again. You remember that uh, the mother of the four children, the wife of uh, Mr. Ranocchi, died in that fatal crash on May the 1st. Phil? Yeah, it's a, a rare, great news development. Uh, Svata, you've been doing great reporting on this yeah. throughout. Thanks so much for your time. Now, officials are warning that a collapsed section of Interstate 95 in Philadelphia could take months to repair what it means for travel in the Northeast coming up ahead. Also news out of Miami, law enforcement is ramping up security there ahead of Donald Trump's arraignment. That is because of threats they've been monitoring online. We'll tell you more about those threats. We're live outside the courthouse. Officials in Miami ramping up security ahead of former President Trump's court appearance tomorrow. They've been tracking heated online rhetoric since the charges were announced. And it's Carlos Suarez is live outside the federal courthouse in Miami this morning. So we're talking about both federal and local officials here talking about stepping up security. Do we have any more specifics about those concerns this morning, Carlos? Well, Erica, good morning. So the Miami Police Department is set to detail its safety and security plan at a news conference here in downtown Miami later today. Now, it is our understanding that the department's entire police roster has been told that they are on standby ahead of the former president's uh, appearance here in federal court on a Tuesday. Now, law enforcement sources have told CNN that a team of FBI agents have been assigned to a domestic terrorism squad and that they are identifying any possible threats to this courthouse out here. They are also keeping a close eye on the Proud Boys. We're told by these law enforcement sources that there has been some, some communication between the group about traveling to Florida, though we're being told that there is no indication of any specific or credible threats. Uh, as you noted, we are already starting to hear and see some of this politically charged rhetoric surrounding the former president's indictment. The former uh, Republican candidate for governor in Arizona, Carrie Lake, she has come under criticism for what she said following the news of that indictment. Here are those comments. We are, we're at war, people. If you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. And I'm going to tell you, yep, most of us are card-carrying members of the NRA. That's not a threat. That's a public service announcement. All right, so it's important to note uh, that this part of downtown Miami is pretty much already a security bubble. You've got the new federal courthouse here behind me, the old one right across the street, as well as the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Federal Detention Center. And so, Erica, right now, the overall security posture is what you would expect to see considering just the number of federal buildings in this part of town. Yeah, a good point. Carlos, appreciate it. Thank you. 
Well, the federal indictment names one of the former president's aides as a co-conspirator, but who is Walt Nada and how, or rather, what is his alleged role in all of this? We'll take a closer look next. Plus. It's a very detailed indictment, uh, and it's very, very damning. That would be former Attorney General Bill Barr criticizing his former boss for playing the victim. Now Trump is firing back with ugly insults. All that ahead. This is one of the most striking images from the federal Trump indictment. Boxes containing classified information stacked in the Mar-a-Lago ballroom. A prosecutor's alleged that one of Trump's top aides moved those boxes out of that room in March of 2021. The aide's name is Walt Nada. He's still standing by Trump and even campaigned with him over the weekend in Georgia. Nada was charged for what prosecutors say he did in May of 2022, when he allegedly moved more boxes at Trump's direction. Back with Sarah Murray here. And Sarah, I think a lot of people are looking at the indictment, are watching photos of the president with Walt Nada right next to him and saying, who is this guy? Yeah, I mean, he wasn't exactly a household name until, unfortunately, for him last week. So let's take a look at who Walt Nada is. This is someone who's a 40-year-old Navy veteran. He started in the White House mess hall, and then he went on to become a White House valet. When Trump left the White House, he followed Trump to Mar-a-Lago to become a body man. As you know, this is someone who's working in very close proximity to the former president. You need a Diet Coke? He's getting you a Diet Coke. You're tired of holding something? You hand it off to your body man. So very close to the former president. Okay, so what exactly did he do wrong here? What are prosecutors looking at him for in this indictment? A whole lot of things. Essentially, Donald Trump may have taken the documents with this intelligence information in it, but the prosecutors are saying Walt Nauta helped him hide those documents from investigators. So he's charged with conspiracy to obstruct justice, withholding a document or record, corruptly concealing a document or record, concealing a document in a federal investigation, scheming to conceal, and making false statements to federal agents. All right, so that's broadly what they're looking at. But th I think one of the things that's inescapable about this indictment is the detail. I want to drill into the specific accusation from the Justice Department that Trump directed Walt Nada to move the material. Mm -hmm. What does this indictment say? Yeah, let's look at this, because this is the, one of the most damning accusations against Walt Nada. It says Trump had directed Nada to move boxes before Trump attorney ones, we know that to be Evan Corcoran's June 2nd review, so that many boxes were not searched and many documents responsive to the May 11th subpoena could not be found and, in fact, were not found by Trump attorney one. So if you ever wondered, you know, how did Evan Corcoran go into that storage room, find roughly 40 documents, and then a couple months later, the feds come and they find 100 more documents with classified markings, Prosecutors say, this is how Walt Nauta was moving boxes around. And I think that's so critical because it's the timeline that's so important here, the when he was actually alleged to have moved these boxes, right? Right, exactly. The timeline is important here. I mean, prosecutors lay out roughly five times where Walt Nauta is moving these boxes around Mar-a-Lago, which gives you a sense of the kinds of errands that Donald Trump was asking him to do. But the important period is this period from May to June, between when Donald Trump's team receives a subpoena saying, hand back any documents with classified markings, and when Evan Corcoran does this search. At that time, Walt Nauta removes 64 boxes from the storage room. He only puts back about 30. Man, not great, huh? It's not great. And also a very key element of this entire case. Sarah Murray, thanks for walking us through it. Former President Trump set to travel to Florida today. This, of course, ahead of his court appearance. It's scheduled for Tuesday in the classified documents case. So how is Florida preparing? Stay with us.
New this morning, Siena has learned former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi has died. Berlusconi was a billionaire media tycoon, the founder of Italy's largest commercial broadcaster, who of course went on to become the country's longest serving prime minister, despite a career tainted by sex scandals, corruption allegations, and a tax fraud conviction. Berlusconi was often considered the kingmaker in Italian politics. He had been battling leukemia. Silvio Berlusconi was 86 years old. CNN This Morning continues right now. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. Special counsel Jack Smith announcing 37 criminal counts against Trump. Indicted now for hoarding classified documents, sharing them with others. Some of our most sensitive national security information. But still, you get indicted over nothing? If he wants to store material in a box in a bathroom, if he wants to store it in a box on the stage, he can do that. If even half of it is true, then he's toast. You can't have one faction of society weaponizing the power of the state against factions that it doesn't like. I think there's no evidence that the federal Department of Justice has been weaponized. President Trump will have his day in court, but espionage charges are absolutely ridiculous. I think the counts under the Espionage Act are solid counts. Our people are angry and they just keep doing it. This is completely politically motivated. It's election interference at its best. This idea of presenting Trump as a victim of a witch hunt is ridiculous. This is as devastating and specific of an indictment that I think I've ever seen. Good Monday morning. Poppy is off today, America Hill, alongside Phil Mattingly. Uh, quite a Monday, quite a week we are starting off. Yeah, no question about that. I think the most fascinating part of the week ahead started Friday mm-hmm. after we were done with this show. The indictment came out and you realized, oh, wow, this is about as lengthy, detailed and to some degree simple and elegant yeah. kind of way. Uh, and there's a lot to dig into. There is a lot to dig into. We're going to do a lot of that throughout the morning. Yeah. Well, this morning, former President Trump is set to fly to South Florida as he prepares to turn himself in on those federal criminal charges. Right now, he's at his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, gearing up for a historic and unprecedented legal battle. And we're expecting him to huddle with his lawyers today at his resort near Miami before he surrenders tomorrow at a federal courthouse. You remember, he's facing 37 counts over his handling of classified documents. Federal prosecutors say Trump illegally kept a stash of some of the nation's most closely guarded secrets and tried to hide them as well from the FBI and even his own attorney. Former president allegedly kept the boxes of highly sensitive documents in places around the Mar-a-Lago resort, including a bathroom, a shower, and his bedroom. Just hours from now, officials in Miami set to hold a news conference. They're going to be talking more about what they're doing in terms of ramping up security ahead of that court appearance on Tuesday afternoon. Sources telling CNN the FBI is tracking potential threats as violent rhetoric surges online. We're also told the far-right group, the Proud Boys, are discussing traveling to Florida to show their support for the former president. A lot to cover this morning. And of course, we have all of those angles covered with our team here at CNN. Audie Cordish, Sarah Murray, John Miller, Ellie Honing here with us in the studio. Let's begin with CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance, who is outside the federal courthouse in Miami. So how are we expecting this to play out, Caitlin? Well, Erica and Phil, it's going to be a pretty quick trip to the state of Florida from Donald by Donald Trump. So he's going to be traveling into Miami today and then going to his resort nearby. Uh, and essentially, he's got to prepare for what's to come on Tuesday afternoon. So he, we expect him to be talking with his lawyers. His co-defendant, Walt Nada, had been traveling with him 
over the weekend and is also expected to come to court under this summons from the Justice Department to make their initial appearance on Tuesday afternoon. So what that means is on Tuesday, they're going to be brought into this courthouse. We might not see them walk in at all, uh, and they'll go up to the federal courtroom and they'll meet with a magistrate judge where they will face uh, the charges in the indictment. They'll be told exactly what they're charged with, obstruction for both of them, for the former president, 31 counts representing documents that of national security, national defense importance that he is alleged to have retained knowingly outside of the protection of the federal government. And then they'll have the chance to enter their pleas. At this time, that's totally expected that they will say not guilty, even if they could entertain plea deals down the road. And then we're going to get a little bit of sen a sense of how this moves forward after that in court, although the hearing could be pretty short. And then Donald Trump, he's out of town pretty quickly after that. He's going to be flying back up to New Jersey to give a speech at his resort there in Bedminster. Phil and Erica. All right, so that's the next kind of 36 hours. Caitlin, I'm, I'm going to be like one of our bosses here and ask you the question that you can't possibly answer, but <laughs> I still want a definitive answer. Can you lay out, what's the timeline here? We've heard months, we've heard potentially years. What's the timeline for when this could actually all play out toward a verdict? That's a great question because judges do what judges are going to do and can, the court can be very, very unpredictable. But in this circumstance, so we're heading in tomorrow before a magistrate judge, the judge that's going to shepherd this case to trial, Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee herself, uh, she doesn't come in until a later date. And that's whenever we're going to get more of a sense of the full trial timeline, when a date for a trial could be set and how close that actually might be to the election next year. Uh, sometimes cases take a full year or more. They can go into appeals, although not always with a criminal case. It's a lot harder to appeal in the middle of things. But on this circumstance, we already know that the Justice Department wants to move pretty fast. They say that they're going to ask for a speedy trial. So that's like something that the clock starts ticking and the clock only lasts for about three months, give or take a little bit. Uh, we'll see, though, how the judge responds to that, whether or not she's going to allow uh, things to stretch out more, especially because there's classified material involved in this case. Phil and Erica. All right, thanks, Caitlin Polance. Uh, we're going to be sticking with you throughout the course of this morning, Erica. All right, so when it, we're talking about these documents, what exactly were these documents? How did they get from the White House to Mar-a-Lago? How did they get into the hands of investigators? Well, we learned a lot about that from this indictment. CNN senior legal analyst, former federal prosecutor Ellie Honing is with us now. So, Ellie, walk us through what we've learned from the indictments about specifically the documents that were taken to Mar-a-Lago. Erica, it's been a long, strange trip for these documents. And it starts back when Donald Trump was still president in Washington, D.C. Now, this, of course, we recognize that guy, Donald Trump. But get to know this man. That is Walt Nauta. He's the second defendant in this case. He was Donald Trump's valet. And in the weeks and days before Donald Trump left office in January of 2021, the indictment alleges that Trump and Nauta, but Trump himself, was directly involved in the packaging up of these documents and sending them down to Mar-a-Lago. There was some speculation. What, what would Trump know about packing up? The indictment says he was involved mm -hmm. and he knew what was being sent down there. And the indictment gives us really important information about what's in those documents. Yes, there are some things that are souvenirs, trinkets, newspaper articles, but this is what matters for the legal case. There are documents created by and for the CIA, Department of Defense, NSA that relate to our defense and weapons capabilities, our nuclear programs, our potential vulnerabilities, and our plans for a possible retaliation 
That's how serious those documents were that got sent down to Florida. Once they got there, too, the indictment is very specific about what happened to them, the journey, if you will, that they were taking at the resort. Yeah, let's try to track this because the indictment actually lays it out quite clearly. The first place they land, that's a stage, Erica, in a ballroom, in the white and gold ballroom in Mar-a-Laga. That's where they're first put. And by the way, the key guy moving these and orchestrating the moves is Walt Nauta mm-hmm. acting at Donald Trump's instruction. The documents... And that's key. Yes, acting and that's key. And let me make yeah. that point right here. There's a piece of the indictment that quotes a text that Walt Nauta sends to another worker saying he, meaning Donald Trump, he's tracking the boxes. More to follow today on whether he wants to go through, go through more of those boxes today or tomorrow. That's a crucial text that's in the indictment. So the documents start off in the ballroom. They then move to a business center, and then they're moved to the lake room. Now, this, you're not seeing things, folks. That's a shower Mm -hmm. curtain, and yes, that is a toilet. This is the first time I've ever telestrated a toilet. That is where the... May not be the last. The day is young. (laughs) We'll see where it goes. But yes, these documents were kept in the bathroom of the lake room. And then finally, they were moved to a very important location here, the storage room, and an important part of the story is at one point, Nauta goes into the storage room and sees these documents spilled on the ground, and he's sort of panicking. What do we do? So that's how they end up in the storage room. And it's also important, as we note here, this picture that's in the indictment, the fact that it was taken yeah. by Nada when he noticed it over concern. It's a crucial piece of evidence, and it plays into the obstruction of justice part of this, too, because DOJ serves a subpoena in May of 2022. Trump gets his lawyer, Evan Cork, and says, All the documents you're going to go through to respond to that subpoena, they're in the storage room. Corcoran goes through the documents. He finds 38 documents. He gives the DOJ. He says, we did a diligent search. Mm -hmm. This is what we got. Of course, there was many more. So how did that happen? Well, the deception happened by Trump and Nauta because they took 64 documents out of there in the days before Corcoran and just put 30 of them back. We can do the math there. That means 34 boxes were intentionally kept away from Walt Nauta and DOJ. And that's where the obstruction count comes from. A lot happening in there and a lot of detail, important detail. Well, with us now in studio, back like they never left, Audie Cornish and Sarah Murray. Also joining us, CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. And, and John, I want to start with you because you're, you're so good internally about walking us through kind of what's actually happening behind the scenes. Um, the stakes are enormous. Obviously, there's a lot of concern. Uh, what's actually happening in these security preparations leading up to tomorrow? It's a big machine. There's a lot of wheels turning. Secret Service's job is literally going to be to protect former President Trump, get him in, get him out, and make sure he's safe. Uh, The U.S. Marshals, their job is to protect the inside and perimeter of that courthouse. But the Miami PD, Miami-Dade County Police, uh, Florida State Police, they're going to be doing the wider picture around that building. Are there going to be crowds? Are they going to be large crowds? Are there going to be small crowds? Um, that um, create an issue. So right now you're going to be looking at Josh Campbell's reporting from Friday that the FBI has already put out a notice to 56 field offices saying scan for intelligence about anything that may involve violence as a reaction to this. Today you'll see the major city police chiefs of the big cities and their intelligence commander put together a conference call where they will literally poll each other. What are you hearing? What do you have? to get a national picture of what cities are facing. But Miami's ground zero for tomorrow. You've got groups like the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, Patriot Front. Uh, some of these are very damaged because their leadership from these recent cases has been, have been put in federal prison. For the Oath Keepers, that's serious damage. They're a military chain of command group. For the Proud Boys, 
doesn't really matter. They become very decentralized. They work from chapter to chapter, state to state, but they also don't generate large numbers. So all of this is being factored into the security for tomorrow. There's also, I mean, I also want to play some comments from Carrie Lake, former Arizona gubernatorial candidate. And I want to get your take, actually multiple takes, on what these comments mean and how closely they're being monitored. Take a listen. We are, we're at war, people. If you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. And I'm going to tell you, yep, most of us are card-carrying members of the NRA. That's not a threat. That's a public service announcement. She says it's not a threat. How does law enforcement look at comments like that? Are they a threat? So law enforcement looks at comments like that as protected by the First Amendment. What they're looking for is the reaction to those comments on the other side, which is in the chat rooms, in the uh, message boards, are people talking about, let's get our guns, let's do something. Remember... Uh, in Cincinnati, just days after the Mar-a-Lago search warrant, a guy with an AR-15 rifle came in and opened fire on the FBI's office there until he was killed in a shootout with police. So you've got the group thing, you've got the crowd thing, but you've got the lone wolf thing to consider in these factors. And Florida is a funny place. Um, under Governor DeSantis, they uh, made it easier to carry guns. You don't need a permit. You can have concealed weapons. But it's not an open carry state, so you can't show up with your AR-15 rifles in full uniform or your pistols on your hip, you know, and, and fully exposed. But there's a trick, which is if your hunter is on the way to a hunting thing or if you're a fisherman going fishing or if you're a sportsman on your way to target practice, then you can. So you've seen Second, Second Amendment groups mm -hmm. do these gatherings where they carry their weapons in the open, basically challenging law enforcement. They're thinking about all that. I was fascinated where you were going to go after Florida is a funny place. Um, <laughs> well, this is what this kind of yeah. follows on what I was saying earlier about the ways we have all changed in the last five years. I talked about the courts and the justice system, how it is uh, a little more fortified, a little more understanding of what it's dealing with when Trump or a Trump case comes knocking on its door. It's the same thing with law enforcement and the FBI. Wow, have they learned a lesson over the last couple of years to listen to chatter, to pass that chatter on, to really take these kinds of comments or and specific specifically what's going on on social media very seriously, where they can. Obviously, there's Discord channels and things like that that are more low-key and harder to penetrate. But we know they've been doing more work in this area because earlier they talked about extremist groups, Merrick Garland, et cetera. And I think this is going to be another example of where our system has been stress-tested and we might see the reflection of that over the next couple of days. To, to Audie's point, I... I think and hope that the sentences, the convictions and sentences of some of the January 6th rioters have sent a message. I mean, one of the purposes of our criminal justice system and sentencing is deterrence. You want to deter the person right. who's being sentenced, but others too. And you look at these sentences, as John mentioned, the leader of the Oath Keepers got 18 years, Stuart Rhodes. We've seen other sentences, 11 years, seven years. These are real sentences. And I hope that anyone who's thinking of doing anything takes well, note Trump of that. Trump has spoken out on behalf of rioters who have been convicted. At one point, he tweeted an image of them singing in jail. Right. Do you want to be singing in prison for Trump? I mean, <laughs> I that's a cool tweet, but I don't know if people want to lay things down on the line. Yeah, for that. I think we that's can't the forget question. on our own town hall meeting, he was asked, would you pardon all these people if yeah. you were reelected? And he said, sure. Uh, they were, they came with love.
Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if the, if that's what resonates with people. You know, counting on whether Donald Trump's going to get elected again, going to end up in the White House again, he's going to potentially pardon you, or if they are looking at you know what happened in the wake of January 6th, if that does serve as a deterrent. You know, one thing that has been striking to me is how many of the sort of the same players are popping up again. We're talking about the Proud Boys again. You know, I was listening to an interview Roger Stone did with Donald Trump yesterday. Again, another player talking about the supporters that are going to be there in Miami to stand for Donald Trump. And then Roger Stone is quick to say, but we're assembling peacefully. People are going to be assembling peacefully. So we'll see if that resonates. Mara, can I ask you about this? This is the cover of the New York Post. and It'll be familiar for those of us who live in Washington because we've been kind of living in this world throughout the course of any investigation of former President Trump since President Biden mm-hmm. took office. And it says, what about the Bidens? Um, talking about Hunter Biden, talking about Joe Biden. You followed a lot of the congressional investigations very closely. Um, is that a fair analog? <laughs> I don't think we are talking about an apples to apples comparison here. So no, it's not a fair analog in that Nobody in these cases has been stashing hundreds of documents with classified markings in a bathroom and then refusing to return them to the federal government when prosecutors say, return this, we're subpoenaing you, we're searching you, we're serious, return this. I do think it is a fair question to say, you know, what are you guys going to do about the Hunter Biden investigation? This has been going on for a while. We still don't have a charging decision in this case. Again, we're getting to be in the full swing of a a presidential election year. Are you going to charge it or are you going to move on? I think with Joe Biden and, you know, his retention of classified documents, again, he returned them much more willingly than we saw with Donald Trump. The question is, okay, what's going to happen with this? Is this, or is there going to be an end to this investigation? And if so, when are we going to hear about that? Sarah makes a great point about the Hunter Biden investigation at DOJ. This is preposterous. This has been pending, according to our reporting at CNN, since 2018, five years. And this, by the way, this investigation is not the laptop. This investigation is a tax issue. Did Hunter Biden declare his income? And a a sort of obscure gun law. Did he possess a gun while he was addicted to drugs, which you're not allowed to do under federal law? Did he lie about that? But five years, I mean, that's a five-week investigation. Somebody, and this spans the Trump administration and the Biden administration. Someone's got to make a call in this case. I don't know what is going on, but it's beyond anything I've seen before. And the U.S. attorney was kept on from the Trump administration in that case. And and again, there's no parallel. Nobody's saying there's a parallel to anything that we saw in the 37 charges. Um, But to your point, it's it's not a question that just Republicans or or kind of operatives have. Like Democrats are also kind of shaking their head a little bit. Make a call, yeah. What's actually going on here? All right, stick with us. More good stuff to come. Bill Barr now predicting trouble for Donald Trump over his federal indictment. Now, Trump, of course, is weighing in what he's saying about his former attorney general. Plus, the indictment is also drawing a line through the GOP primary field, how those other White House hopefuls are becoming even more divided as they try to find a right way to respond. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. There was nothing wrong with declassifying documents, taking documents with you, negotiating with NARA. The only thing that was wrong was the raid on his home and the complete dual tier system of justice. If even half of it is true, then he's toast. I mean, it's a it's a pretty it's a very detailed indictment uh, and it's very, very damning. And this idea of presenting Trump as a victim here, a victim of a witch hunt uh, is ridiculous. 
Two very different takes there this morning. Former President Trump's current attorney at odds with his former attorney general, who says Trump is not being treated unfairly in this classified documents case. Let's take a closer look now with Donald Ayer, the deputy attorney general under President George H.W. Bush, who's also worked with Bill Barr. It's good to have you with us this morning. We hear those comments from Bill Barr. Um, I mean, very clear in what he sees in this indictment, how detailed it was, what this means for the former president. I wonder how much weight do you think his words carry? Well, I think what really carries weight is what the indictment alleges and the ability, uh, if, if they have it, which I'm sure they do, to prove the events in the indictment. It's a very damning indictment. And if you read the whole thing, you actually see there's a long statement in there by the uh, Donald Trump himself talking about how important it is uh, to protect national security secrets and how he's going to do something about it. Bill Barr is the worst attorney general in the history of the United States. He did everything he could um, to help Donald Trump secure the position he wanted as an autocratic president. He did favors for his friends. He misused the Department of Justice, including using an investigation in order to get Donald Trump reelected. Um, so at the end of the day, what Bill Barr has to say is, is of no weight in my mind. I do think, however, that the fact that this person who was such a scoundrel as the attorney general for Donald Trump, even he sees the force of this indictment and sees how clear it is that Donald Trump has done terrible things for which he deserves to be punished. So I think a lot of people will give it weight. Mm -hmm. you, uh, quite a picture that you paint of your assessment there of the former attorney general and your opinion of him, that some will give it weight. It's interesting, though, because so much of what we hear, it seems that the opinions are already baked in for many Americans. Even, you know, we're going to share some of this reporting uh, later in the hour, but even some of our own reporters in talking to Trump supporters over the weekend, asking specifically about had they read the indictment, there wasn't a desire to even read it. Do you think those comments from a Bill Barr or even Alan Dershowitz, who was writing in an op-ed about how strong the case is in here, those could actually begin to have some sway or at least encourage people to read the indictment for themselves? <laughs> Well, I, I am not myself that intimately familiar with the psychology of, um, you know, all of the Trump supporters, but it's really hard for me to believe that among his most loyal supporters, there are not a number, you know, I don't know what it is, 15, 20, 25, 30 percent who can be appealed to by reason. And the idea that uh, it seems to me a lot of them were very supportive of Bill Barr precisely because Bill Barr did the worst things in the world in order to support Donald Trump. Well, here's this person who did those things and who was practically the hero of the Trump supporters for many, many months as attorney general. Here he is standing up and condemning <clears throat> Donald Trump for the acts that were done here. Hard for me to believe that there aren't a, some marginal number. I don't know, again, what the percentage is, but it, it will be significant if 10 or 15 or 20 percent of Trump supporters are influenced by this. We have heard consistently from the former president railing against the Justice Department, railing <laughs> against government institutions, talking about what he would do if reelected to gut them. How important when it comes to the rule of law in this country are these charges and is this pending trial? <clears throat> 
Well, I think, <clears throat> I think they're very important. And I think, frankly, the rest of the charges, which I believe will be coming for January 6th, are even more important. And of course, they stand for the proposition that when a, a, a high official, like anyone else, does terrible things, does things that are obviously, you know, not only crimes, but very serious crimes that really go to the heart of our national interest, they have to pay the price. So accountability here is absolutely critical um, for the public's respect for the law. And that's really what's at stake now, to, is to, whether the public is, the United States citizens are gonna believe that, that we have a country where the law matters and whether that respect is still there. I, I want to get you quickly on two things. You just mentioned January 6th charges. So you believe there will be charges filed in relation to Donald Trump's role in January 6th? I do. I absolutely do. I, against, against Donald Trump? I think so. I mean, I, I, again, I, don't, I am not privy to all the evidence that they have, and there's always the possibility, although I think it's a small one, Mm -hmm. that somehow there are things that make it impossible to do that. But I think the attorney general, who has been unfairly attacked all manner of times by many people on the left and the right, um, I think the attorney general is forthright and solid on the need to hold people accountable. Um, and I believe he's, he's going to play it absolutely straight. And playing it straight, I think, here is going to mean that Donald Trump is, you know, all the things in the hearings and on the Hill showed Donald Trump was at the center of the entire movement for January 6th. He's the one that drove that whole process. You cannot fail to hold that person accountable and, and have a system of justice that deserves to be respected. It simply isn't possible. As we wait to see how that investigation plays out, before I let you go, I wonder what do you think the possibility here would be in, in the documents case, the classified documents case here, of some sort of a plea deal? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the government would take a plea to, you know, a whole bunch of the charges. I haven't any doubt about that. I, you know, it's really about Donald Trump and, you know, he's forever playing every situation to his own PR advantage. And what is he going to perceive to be that? I, it's hard for me to imagine that he would agree to go to jail. And it's hard for me to imagine that the government would plea the case without having him go to jail. So it seems unlikely to me. Donald, I really appreciate your perspective. Thank you for joining us this morning. Right now, officials are setting up alternate routes for morning commuters after a section of I-95 collapsed in Philadelphia. We'll take you live near that overpass. We're also continuing our ongoing and breaking coverage into the indictment of former President Donald Trump. Stay with us. Okay, this is just, you know, a, a normal bump, a normal little brush fire. Um, then once I realized what happened, when I looked in my rearview mirror, I see 95, all the cars stopping. And then I learned, you know, shortly after that, the road had just collapsed. Now, our special coverage of the indictment is continuing, but we want to take you to Philadelphia now this morning, where officials are scrambling to set up detours for morning commuters after a section of Interstate 95 collapsed on Sunday. Now, it's a major artery for commuters and travelers that will create real travel problems for months to come. Now, a portion of the crucial East Coast Highway was destroyed after a tanker truck caught fire. I want to turn to CNN's Danny Freeman. He's live for us in Philadelphia. Um, I think everybody's stunned by the pictures and also how this actually happened. What are people need, need to know right now as they try to get to work or try and travel up I-95 this morning? 
Well, listen, I think the main message that all government officials in this area are trying to get to the public in terms of commuters and what they need to know is stay away from this area. I can speak from experience. I came from my home uh, almost uh, in South Philly, and it was a nightmare. There were huge trucks on small roads that really are not meant for that. This whole area is clogged up because I-95 is still shut down in both directions. Like you said, though, there are still a lot of questions that we don't have answers to why and how this all started, but I will tell you what we do know. Basically, yesterday morning, almost 24 hours ago, on Sunday morning, a tanker truck was underneath this part of I-95 behind me. It caught fire, and then the northbound lanes uh, over here in this section of I-95 collapsed right on the ground, right on top of that tanker. The southbound lanes, the closest lanes that we are to right now, they also have been compromised. And I gotta say, at this point, as far as we know, the truck is still trapped in that wreckage. Crews have been sifting overnight trying to take basically 500 tons of concrete mess off of the road and off of that truck to try and piece together what exactly happened here. And we've been hearing that heavy machinery dig away for hours and hours now. Uh, there have been no reported injuries at this time. That's a good thing. However, the governor said in a news conference yesterday that they still are not sure if there was someone inside that truck when this collapse happened yesterday morning. Take a listen to some of the things that the governor said when he first laid eyes on this scene. Remarkable devastation. And I found myself, you know, thanking the Lord that uh, no motorists who were on, 95, on I-95 um, were injured or died. Uh, just a, a remarkably devastating sight. Um, one that our first responders, law enforcement, uh, and others um, contained very, very quickly. They got people out of harm's way. And now, uh, under leadership of Secretary Carroll and others, um, the hard work of uh, clearing the site and rebuilding it will be underway, and we're going to move as quickly as possible. And of course, that's Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro. He said in that news conference yesterday that the cleanup here could take some number of months, but he did say that he's issued a disaster declaration to get some funds more quickly to fix this mess behind me. Back to you. All right, Danny Freeman, stick with us. We're going to be asking for updates on this throughout the course of the morning. Thanks so much. Uh, former President Trump wasting no time in rallying support following his indictment. How his competitors to the presidential nomination are reacting to that news. And this morning, more than 80 million people are under a severe storm threat from the central U.S. through the southeast and into the northeast. More than 200 storm reports in the south on Sunday from this system. Reading that indictment and looking at the selective omissions of both fact and law, Dan, I'm even more convinced that a pardon is the right answer here. We shouldn't be promising and holding out the fig leaf of a pardon because that undermines our jury system. We don't need a commander in chief that disregards the nation's secrets Contenders for the Republican presidential nomination really grappling and certainly finding different tones as they talk about the indictment for frontrunner Donald Trump. We sat down with co-anchor of State of the Union, our colleague Dana Bash, who joins us now. She is also, of course, the new host of Inside Politics, premiering today at noon, which we're all very excited about. Dana, um, these conversations were fascinating over the weekend and really painted such a picture of this divide that we see among the 2024 Republican hopefuls. Um, anything that really stood out to you or even surprised you in terms of those comments and those very clear lanes? Well, <clears throat> surprise me these days, 
Probably not, not. <laughs> because because we have seen uh, the sort of precursor to the indictment with the comments from most of the 2024 candidates uh, that even those who like uh, you heard Vivek Ramaswamy, who is I mean, he and the others, they are running against Donald Trump. They are competitors. And yet they understand where the base is from which they need to get votes. And it is not for the most part, where Asa Hutchinson is. Asa Hutchinson is speaking as a traditional conservative, somebody who has governed uh, both in uh, the, the governor's mansion in Arkansas and also in Washington as an administration official during Bush. And he is a more traditional kind of old school Republican. And he's saying, wait a minute, guys, what are we doing? And if you just look at the polling, uh, both just the horse race polling of where Donald Trump is and the polling on how people are consuming this and the reaction within the Republican primary electorate, um, they are very sort of forgiving of Donald Trump and dismissive of what is going on when it comes to where they want their vote to be. You know, Dana, I was watching with great interest your interview with Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, longtime, uh, very fervent defender of the former president. Mm -hmm. uh, in part, I was taking notes on, on your back and forth and how you pushed <laughs> back and tried to probe on that. I, I want you to listen to some of the sound from yesterday. I'm going to say he there did There are it. classified documents in uh -huh. the bathroom, in a ballroom stage, and classified information that, he sh that, that we're talking about. Uh, information that the United States shares with its allies, critical information, strewn on the floor. Does that look secure to you? Again, Dana, the standard is the standard. The president of the United States, he can classify and he can control access to national security information however he wants. The standard is what the Constitution says, and the commander in chief, the president of the United States, has the ability to classify and control access to information. That's what the Constitution the and the States court have anymore. said. So you can't obstruct when there's, 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 well, you can't obstruct he when there's no underlying He is not the president crime. of the United that States. That is the fundamental flaw. If you, and you're just taking him at his word. And when he was president, he I mean, it's a combative back and forth because it always is, and that's fine. That's part of the discussion. But what was your takeaway uh, from that actual conversation with one of the closest allies the foreign president has? With one of the closest allies, and let's be clear, he is the chairman of the House Judiciary oh. Committee. He has a very, very big role, uh, not just on this, but on oversight of the entire judicial system in uh, America. And I have to say that in prepping for the discussion that I was having with Chairman Jordan, uh, saying that the president, former president, had the right to have these documents was not on my bingo card. Uh, that was an argument that we had heard uh, historically, but not recently, particularly after we, we saw the indictment. Um, and the fact that he made that argument over and over again, despite the fact that Donald Trump is no longer the president, despite the fact that in the document, more than once in the indictment document, uh, he is quoted as saying, this is classified. Basically, you're not supposed to see this, effectively admitting that he's not supposed to have it. And by the way, he didn't declassify the document in particular that he was talking about in this uh, anecdote before he left office. It just, it just disproves 
the argument that uh, that Mr. Jordan is making. I was very surprised about that because the Supreme Court case that he was citing was about sitting presidents and Donald Trump is not a sitting president. But Margaret, in many ways, right, to, to Dana's point about uh, his facts not adding up there, that doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter. But when I'm talking about in terms of the defense that is often put out there by the former president's biggest supporters, yep. it is not about looking to the facts to bolster your argument, and certainly not in this case. It's about being the loudest voice in the rooms and in many times trying to distract you to some shiny object over here, whether it's with whataboutism or, oh, this thing happened and nobody's going to have time to fact check it. And I'm just going to say it loudly enough that it's just gonna, people will believe me. Uh the former president does have a playbook. We've seen the playbook used again and again, and it does involve sort of uh, getting ahead of your own uh, defense to the best you can, setting the narrative yourself, and rallying the troops. And in this case, the troops are Jim Jordan. Uh, the troops are also Kevin McCarthy, who's over a barrel right now with mm -hmm. the right flank of his caucus because the debt ceiling vote, trying to hang on to support, trying to gather enough Republicans to have any votes to do the business of the House. And as long as the former president has a lock on, on his base, uh, it's going to be very difficult for his GOP rivals to take him on head on, to challenge him. But it's also going to be very difficult for them to find their own path yeah. to run around him. And I think when you're looking at Ron DeSantis and many of the other Republicans in the field, uh, they have tried to offer themselves as an alternative to Trump that's just not Trump, saying, I'm, I'm all the stuff you like about Trump and none of the baggage of Trump. And what the base is saying is, we're okay with the baggage yeah. of Donald Trump right now. And I think you saw that in Dana's really strong interview with a Republican rival, right? Someone basically in a way, and I'm just going to think of this in kind of like a, a higher up sort of media strategy way, it's uh, let me say something sharp enough to put this reporter uh, on their back foot. That's the clip everyone's going to play. Me saying that I would, um, you know, pardon Donald Trump. They're not going to play the follow up. They're not going to play any of the facts around the case. And that might be the only way this week mm -hmm. to get any media support when you're one of those candidates who's down mm -hmm. in the two and three and four percent. Dan, one of my favorite things uh, about when they're crazy enough to let me sit in this chair um, is I can ask my good friends and reporters who I often text with or have conversations with what they're actually hearing behind the scenes. Uh -huh. When you talk to Republican campaigns, top Republican officials, and they're being candid about what they see in these 37 charges in this indictment, what are they saying? It's bad. <laughs> it's bad. I mean, on its face, it is bad. Anybody who can read and has even the most basic understanding of the rule of law and of the legal system, it is bad on the legal front. On the political front, they are worried. They see uh, the idea that the Republican electorate is already kind of leaning towards distrusting the very institution that is involved in uh, prosecuting him. And the fact that Donald Trump is playing into that and is stoking that, as he always does. And th they realize that in the short term, politically, it is not it is not good for their bosses, for their candidates, the um, aides in the campaigns who are his competitors. Uh, they admit it, which is, it, again, I, I just have to say that it used to be that those two issues would dovetail. Something that was bad legally would be bad politically. And the fact that we are in a, a scenario where the two things are at odds 
is not normal and it is very much about Trump and Trumpism and the Trump era. It's a great point and important and so important to continue to point it out. Yeah, no, absolutely. Audie, Margaret, Dana, thanks so much as always. And this is very important. You can see more of Dana in just a couple of hours inside politics with Dana Bash, my good friend, colleague, and a wonderful, wonderful reporter. Premieres today at noon. You must be watching. We heard Dana mention uh, we've been talking about there is new information. There's new polling about how voters feel about the indictment. So what are they saying since this news broke? We're going to break that down for you. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. If they come to me, how do you stand this? And I usually look at them and say, in a sick way, I sort of enjoy it. Because... It exposes them. It exposes them for what they are. And it's also lifted the poll numbers to even higher lengths. Have you seen this? The polls are through the roof and the fundraising, small dollar fundraising is setting records. Now, the point about the numbers, Donald Trump may actually be right about that. New polling suggesting his supporters have not wavered one bit, despite this being his second indictment, potentially more to come. Here to crunch those numbers is the one, the only, CNN senior data reporter, Harry Anton. All right, Harry, some immediate polls out in the field right after this happened. What are they telling us? Yeah, they're showing exactly what the former president indicated, right? So, look, these are the top choices for GOP nominee. This is CBS News YouGov poll. Look, back in late April, look where Donald Trump was. He was at 58%. Look where he is today. Half this poll was taken post that second indictment. 61%, nearly a 40-point advantage over his nearest opponent, Ron DeSantis. And what does the polling say? Should Trump have been charged with a crime for the classified documents handling? Look, when you look at the overall public, 48% say yes. That's more than the 35% who say no. But look at the GOP. Just 16% say yes versus 67% who say no. And you know what? That 16% that say no on the classified documents handling, should Trump have been charged with a crime? Equal Stormy Daniels hush money case, that's 16%. So that GOP is locked in on saying, no, Trump should not have been charged with a crime. Harry, you also have some interesting numbers, not just polling, but there were numbers in that indictment talking about, we're talking about where the documents were stored at Mar-a-Lago, in terms of how many people were in that space over this number of months. Yeah, so take a look here. Look, all about numbers. The FBI searched Mar-a-Lago on day about 565 after Trump left office. That's a long period of time. So how many people and how many events happened between January of 2021 and August of 2022? Look at this. Mar-a-Lago hosted 10,000 plus people over 150 events. So the number of people who are going through these halls when Trump allegedly kept classified documents there after his presidency, a lot of folks, potentially. That is a lot. Are you just jealous that you weren't one of them? You know what? I'd like to go on vacation. You could definitely get into the ballroom and the bathroom. Harry Anton, great, as always. Thanks, Thanks buddy. buddy. Former President Trump set to leave his New Jersey golf club soon, head back down to Florida for tomorrow's court appearance. We're going to take a closer look at the security preparations in Miami. That's, of course, all related to Donald Trump's historic indictment. Stay with us. We want to make sure uh, that all our citizens know that they're going to be able to um, express their First Amendment rights. And at the same time, uh, we're going to keep them safe and we're going to make sure that there is no uh, disorder. Good Monday morning, everyone. Poppy is off today. I'm Erica Hill alongside Phil Mattingly. Uh, nice to be with you on a big, big morning start of a really important week. 
that, of course, was the mayor of Miami just there. That city ramping up security as Donald Trump prepares to surrender himself on federal charges tomorrow. Now, the former president will leave New Jersey and fly down to Miami in potentially just a couple of hours. We'll break down former President Trump's plans for today and for tomorrow and what he's saying about the historic indictment against him. Plus, uh, Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, is going to join us live to weigh in on these very serious allegations against his former boss, his take on what those mean, too, in terms of national security. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. This morning, former President Trump is set to fly south to Florida as he prepares to turn himself in on federal charges tomorrow. Uh, live pictures there outside his uh, resort in Bedminster, New Jersey. Again, he'll be departing uh, within the next uh, few hours from there, making his way to Florida because, of course, he's now facing this historic, unprecedented legal battle after being charged with 37 counts. Special counsel Jack Smith's team of prosecutors says the former president illegally kept a stash of highly sensitive records, including military secrets and documents about America's nuclear program, and that he allegedly stored them in various places, including a bathroom, a shower, even his bedroom at his Mar-a-Lago resort. Now, Trump, as you would probably expect, is vowing to stay in the presidential race, even if he's convicted. He's railed against the indictment over the weekend while he was on the campaign trail. Take a listen. As far as the joke of an indictment, it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing for this country. I mean, the only good thing about it is it's driven my poll numbers way up. Can you believe this? Way up. In a matter of hours, officials in Miami will hold a news conference as they ramp up security ahead of Trump's initial court appearance. Sources tell CNN the FBI is tracking potential threats as violent rhetoric surges online. We're told the far-right group The Proud Boys is discussing traveling to Florida to show their support for the former president. Now, we're covering this from all angles. Sarah Murray, John Miller, Audie Cornish, and Ali Hornig are all in studio. Carlos Suarez is in Miami, but let's start with Elena Treen, who's in Bedminster, where the former president is preparing to leave his golf club and head to the airport. Elena, what's your sense of things right now in talking to his team? Right. Well, good morning, Phil and Erica. We are here in Bedminster, uh, where Donald Trump will be leaving soon. He's expected to pass just right by here on his way to Miami ahead of his arraignment tomorrow at 3 p.m. Now, once he is in Florida, we are told that he's going to be meeting with his attorneys to discuss his new Florida-based legal strategy. And that's after Donald Trump abruptly removed two of his attorneys, Jim Trusty and John Rowley, uh, on Friday, just hours after learning of his indictment. Now, uh, tomorrow, Donald Trump will be arraigned. And then uh, his advisors tell me that immediately after, he's going to be flying back to Bedminster, where he will be giving a uh, fundraiser and also a private dinner and giving live remarks tomorrow night. And, and we've seen this playbook before, Erica and Phil. I mean, after he was arraigned in Manhattan earlier this year, he swiftly flew back to Mar-a-Lago, took to a stage and spoke to his crowd of supporters. And uh, his advisors tell me that we should expect a similar speech tomorrow night where Donald Trump will remain defiant. He will deny any wrongdoing, as he's been doing for the past several days now. And he will try to frame these charges as a political persecution. So as we wait for those remarks, which is you rightly say, we know we know that playbook quite well. There is also talk, though, about what's happening behind the scenes. Dana Bash talking about conversations she's had about the concern, uh, both legally and politically. What are you hearing about whether there are any efforts to maybe temper 
those remarks at all of the former president. Right. Well, um, that Dana's reporting is exactly right. I mean, it's what I'm hearing as well. I've been speaking with his advisors and several of his allies over the past several days now, and they've admitted that concern has settled in among many on his team as they worry about what the legal implications of this could be like. But I do think even though we're seeing that a little bit behind the scenes, Donald Trump was still going to remain defiant and, you know, use the bravado that we've seen even over the weekend when he was in Georgia and North Carolina and North Carolina during his campaign stops on Saturday. Um, I think we're going to see that again tomorrow. But I just want to add, um, given that concern, even Donald Trump himself has admitted that he does not want to be indicted. He had an interview with Politico aboard his plane on Saturday where he said, quote, nobody wants to be indicted. I don't care that my poll numbers went up by a lot. I don't want to be indicted. I've never been indicted. I went through my whole life. Now I get indicted every two months. It's been political. And that's what Donald Trump told Politico. So you can see that even though he's publicly, uh, you know, pushing back against these charges privately, there is concern. That, and really, he does not want to be indicted here, Eric Unfill. Elena Treen, appreciate the reporting. Thank you. Well, the 45th president will travel from New Jersey to Florida in coming hours. CNN's Carlos Suarez is outside the federal courthouse in Miami, where Trump will appear tomorrow. Now, Carlos, what security measures have you heard are actually being put in place right now? Well, Phil, good morning. So the Miami Police Department is expected to detail their safety and security plans ahead of the former president's appearance in federal court here on Tuesday. Uh, it is our understanding that the entire Miami-Dade Police Department all of its officers are being told that they are being put on standby ahead of Tuesday should any protests take place outside of this courthouse. Now, law enforcement sources tell CNN that a group of FBI agents have been assigned to a domestic terrorism squad and that they are identifying any possible threats to this building here in downtown Miami. We're told that they're also keeping a close eye on the Proud Boys group because apparently there has been some, uh, some communication between group members about traveling to Florida, though it is important to note that we're being told right now that there is no any, uh, there's no indication of any specific or credible threat. Now, law enforcement here in South Florida is growing increasingly concerned about some of the uh, political rhetoric that we're seeing surrounding the former president's indictment. The former Republican governor, uh, candidate for governor, rather, in Arizona, Carrie Lake, she is coming under increased uh, criticism for some words that she expressed over the weekend about this indictment. Here are some of those comments. We are, we're at war, people. If you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. And I'm going to tell you, yep, most of us are card-carrying members of the NRA. That's not a threat. That's a public service announcement. Phil and Erica, as you can imagine right now, the overall security posture is what you would expect it to be considering just a number of federal buildings here in downtown Miami. We're talking about the new federal courthouse here behind me, the old one right across the street, as well as the U.S. Attorney's Office. And then you've got the federal detention center just next door. All right, Carlos Suarez, Suarez in Miami. Thanks so much.
there is a lot of discussion this morning about the federal judge assigned to oversee this case. It's a name that is familiar to Donald Trump. In fact, he appointed her to that role, and it's a name that's likely familiar to you as well. Judge Eileen Cannon, you may remember that name because she, of course, oversaw the legal fight following the FBI's search of Mar-a-Lago last summer. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig joining us now. He's also a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and a federal and New Jersey state prosecutor. So we have talked about this judge before. Refresh our memories. What more do we know about her, about her experience, her background? So, Erica, anytime the judge gets wheeled out or assigned in a case, that is a moment of great suspense for the parties. You're sort of holding your breath, hoping you get a good judge. I suspect Donald Trump's team was delighted when they saw Judge Cannon. I suspect prosecutors less so. Now, she's fairly young for a federal judge. She graduated law school in 2007. She's 42 years old. Apparently, I'm older than federal judges now. I don't know when that happened. She then did... <laughs> Uh, clerkship for a conservative federal judge, and then she was a big firm lawyer in private practice. She then spent seven years as a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of Florida, so she understands how criminal trials work. And then she was nominated to the federal bench by who? Donald Trump in 2020. She was confirmed by a 56 to 21 vote in the Senate, including 12 Democrats who voted yes. Now, as you said, if people recognize this name, it's because she was involved earlier, after the August search of Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump went to court and asked for a special master to review the documents for privilege or any other issue before they went over to DOJ. That case went to Judge Cannon. She gave Trump the special master, but then DOJ appealed and the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals rejected, reversed her in pretty staunch terms. They, the 11th Circuit wrote that Judge Cannon had, quote, improperly exercised equitable jurisdiction. Let me translate that. It means she went out of her lane. She did more than she's allowed to do as a judge. And the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals wrote, the law is clear. We cannot write a rule that allows any subject of a search warrant to block government investigations after the execution of the warrant, nor can we write a rule that allows only former presidents to do so. So Judge Cannon does have some history on this case already. So there's a little history, as you point out. You can't pick the judge. You get the judge. This likely makes the Trump team happy. Yes. Do you see a scenario at all where DOJ would say, maybe there's a conflict of interest here? Big question here. So if anyone is going to make a motion to recuse the judge, to move her off the case, the judge herself can do that. Judges all the time say, I have a conflict of interest. I'm out. They just assign it to another one. Or DOJ can make a motion, say, Judge, it's a little awkward, but we think you ought to recuse mm -hmm. yourself, and here's why. Could there be a potential conflict of interest? Well, first, there's the point that she was a Trump nominee. We've never had this before, because we've never had a president capable of appointing federal judges as a defendant. My, my suspicion is that's not going to be enough. Or they could say you had that prior ruling, but usually giving a prior ruling in favor of somebody in the getting reversed is not quite enough for a conflict of interest, but we'll see. This could be the first time we see this. All right, Ellie, appreciate it. Phil? All right, back with us now, Audie Cornish, John Miller, Sarah Murray. Sarah and John were just engaged in a very intense conversation <laughs> that I kind of really want some insight into, but I'm not going to ask because, you know, you weren't on camera. You can tell me later. Um, John, I, I want to get to what Carlos was kind of detailing in terms of the scale of the operation, uh, given what's coming on the law, law enforcement side of things. We, we've seen what's happening publicly behind the scenes. Walk us through kind of the preps, both on the state and federal level. So they have a couple of scheduled rallies, one for 10 a.m. Um, and then one at noon at the courthouse. Now we're looking at a three o'clock appearance. So um, that's people gathering fairly early. Um, the 12, the flyer for the 12 noon rally says peaceful rally. Uh, they actually point that out as if it didn't need it to be. Uh, but between Miami City, this is in Miami City, not Miami Beach. Uh, that's an 1100 person police department. Um, and they still have to patrol the city. So that's going to take a lot of resources from them. 
then you've got the county, which is Miami-Dade. They can supply extra people. Um, then you've got the U.S. Marshals and, uh, you know, the Florida State Police. All of that coordination is happening today. They've been doing that all weekend. They did the walkthrough of the courthouse with Secret Service. How do we bring him in? What's the pathway to the courtroom? Where is he going to get booked in this building in terms of fingerprinting and, you know, pretrial forms and all that? How are we getting him out? Is it the same way? All of those wheels have been turning, um, and that's to protect former President Trump. Then there's the outside piece. So there's a lot going into that, but really they're looking at the intel. What are they saying in the online chats? Peaceful rally? That's great. That's the, the job of the police is to protect people's First Amendment right to, to protest or to support. But when you look in the chat rooms and you, th you see things on TikTok like, we got a 1776, these MFs, it's time to start loading magazines, or, you know, this is time for civil war. In context, we saw all that for mm -hmm. the New York indictment, too, right. and we saw no violence. Um, some of that is puffery, but they're going to be on edge because they're watching the traffic. And Sarah, you pointed out earlier that what we're hearing, even from some of those staunchly in Donald Trump's corner, is a little pushback on some of that language and a reminder, just like the flyers, that they want any appearance that someone may make in support of the former presidents to be peaceful. Well, you know, yeah, there has been some cautioning. You know, I was listening to an interview that Roger Stone did with Donald Trump yesterday, and Roger Stone is talking about all the people who are going to come to Miami to support him and saying, but it's going to be peaceful. It's going to be civil. It's going to be legal. He even asked Trump, you know, if he wants to say anything to his supporters, and Trump was sort of very demure. He gave sort of like a, a ranting answer about upholding the Constitution, and then he goes on to say that any protest needs to be peaceful. Look. Roger Stone is someone who's been indicted before. They see what has happened to a bunch of Donald Trump supporters who showed up at the Capitol on January 6th and have now faced lengthy prison sentences. So you hope that that's a deterrent. But again, unlike New York, Florida's a much Trumpier place uh, than New York. So I think it's kind of hard to predict what the turnout is going to look like. Let's also remember, but these words matter. I mean, if you look at the January 6th defendants who've been prosecuted, dozens of them have said at their sentencings, we believed we were, my client believed he was following the president's wishes. He was doing what the president and wanted. And their social media was used against them in their yes, cases. Exactly right, yeah. Uh, the other thing going on is, remember, we're many years after the sort of 2020-20 Black Lives Matter protest in many cities, and cities do have a better idea about large-scale protests or even a better idea of how to cooperate in preparation for any kind of feared um, kind of mass gathering. Can I ask, Ellie, I'm going to direct this to you um, because you have some expertise on the former attorney general um, in a book, I believe, uh, related to <laughs> his time book about the guy in yep. office. But, you know, we're talking about the atmospherics and the protests and the politics around things, but on the actual substance itself, this was what former President Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, had to say. Listen. If even half of it is true, then he's toast. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a very detailed indictment, uh, and it's very, very damning. And this idea of presenting Trump as a victim here, a victim of a witch hunt, uh, is ridiculous. You're, you're going to make me say it on national TV, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, kind of. I, I, uh, here we go. I agree with Bill Barr on this point. <laughs> I think he's right about this indictment. It is a detailed, fact-based specifically sourced and cited indictment. Uh, look, I've seen a lot of indictments in my career. Um, some indictments are sort of so general you can't really tell. This one is on point, and I think he's in real trouble. The other thing that I think is, again, gosh, again, I, that I agree with Bill Barr is, it's entirely self-inflicted by Donald Trump. When you read this narrative, if he had just at any point said, 
guys, give him the documents back. It would have been over. He didn't actually get charged for any of the documents that were voluntarily turned over to archives. No criminal charges on that. So, um, but right. another piece yeah. of context, I think, is that Bill Barr is a flawed messenger fundamentally, so. right? Yes. He didn't come out and say, well, actually, I, too, was a person who helped weaponize the Justice Department, Thank right? you, yes. He's not saying that. <laughs> He's just saying, hey, look, this case is really solid. And I do think that affects how he's heard mm -hmm. by both diehard supporters, and I don't want to talk about how wide that group is, um, but also people who are in the maybe category. Is there a problem here? Should we think a little bit more about how justice is applied? Is there something going on at the Justice Department? Those people will not be calmed by hearing someone like Bill Barr, who just sort of like has such a messy history of comments around various investigations on behalf of Trump, they're not going to hear him and be like, oh, okay, now, now I've got some real, yeah, Bill yeah, Barr so said I'm, this. I'm and a lot of people are in that position who are mm -hmm. coming out now to say one thing or another. They've already spent a lot of time behind Donald Trump making the arguments that they are now speaking out against. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, there's nothing black and white in this when it comes to the actual supporters. Um, Guys, thank you. Guarantee you you're coming back. Do not go anywhere. We won't allow it. Also, Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, will join us live to weigh in on the allegations against his former boss and, most importantly, the highly sensitive documents former President Trump is accused of keeping at Mar-a-Lago. Plus, a miracle in the Amazon. A group of children found alive after more than a month. How officials say they were able to survive in the jungle. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. shocked by the degree of sensitivity of these documents and how many there were, frankly. And uh, so the government's agenda was to get those, uh, protect those documents and get them out. And I think it was perfectly appropriate to do that. It was the right thing to do. Uh, and I think the counts under the Espionage Act uh, that he willfully retained those documents are solid counts. That, of course, was former Attorney General Bill Barr saying he's shocked by how sensitive the documents are at the center of the new indictment against his old boss, his old boss he defended quite often in the past. And I want to read a specific paragraph from that indictment that gets at what Barr was talking about. In it, it says, quote, the Justice Department alleges the documents included information regarding defense and weapons capabilities of both the United States and foreign countries, our nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the United States and its allies to military attack, and plans for possible retaliation in response to foreign attack. Now, it goes on to say the unauthorized disclosure of these classified documents could put at risk the national security of the United States, foreign relations, and the safety of the United States military and human sources. I want to bring in Donald Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton. He joins us now. He also served as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And Ambassador Bolton, look, you are neither uh, secretive nor subtle about your desire to see the former president out of the race uh, for president or to be uh, a candidate for president anymore. I don't really want to ask about the politics because I want to ask you about what these documents actually mean. There's a lot of classification markings. There's a lot of uh, words and descriptions that people might not understand Tell people from a national security perspective what's in the documents laid out in this indictment. Well, of course, neither I nor anybody else uh, not involved in the case knows what's in the documents yet. Uh, but I do know what kinds of documents were put in front of the president uh, during my time, I'm sure during the entire four years of his term. Uh, and they did go to absolute uh, the most important secrets that the United States 
uh, has, uh, directly affecting national security, directly affecting the lives, lives and safety of our service members and our civilian population. If he has anything like what the complaint, what the indictment alleges, and of course the government will have to prove it, uh, then, then he has committed very serious crimes. This is, this, this is a devastating indictment. I speak here as an alumnus of the Justice Department myself, uh, because not only is it powerful, it's very narrowly tailored. They didn't throw everything up against the wall to see what would stick. Uh, this really is a rifle shot, and I, I think it's, uh, it should be uh, the end of Donald Trump's political career. He's obviously made clear he doesn't think that's going to be the case. Um, it should be no surprise to anybody. But I do want to ask you, still on the documents, I know you don't know the specific documents themselves, but when you look at the classification levels, can you explain to people how difficult it would be for an average uh, government employee, one, to have access to them in the first place, and two, to be able to get them out of uh, a compartmentalized uh, area where you're supposed to be reading secretive documents? Well, it will vary depending on the level of the employee and where they are. My office, uh, my old office at the White House, the whole office was a skiff uh, because we just uh, were drowning in classified information. Uh, and at least in theory, the Oval Office ought to be a pretty safe place, too. Uh, and it's very important, obviously, to give the president all the information uh, he needs to make a decision. Unfortunately, Trump didn't pay too much attention to a lot of what he was given, but he paid enough attention to it to have a constant fixation of trying to hold on to documents. A lot of things we got back from him. Uh, obviously, a lot of things we didn't. I've been interested to see some of your Republican counterparts who maybe aren't as uh, hyperbolic, I guess would be the word, on some things related to the former president saying, look, this isn't great. But a trial or an indictment of a former president and the, lead, the front runner in the Republican nomination is far worse for the country than what actually happened here. How do you, what do you make of that? Well, I, I don't buy that argument at all. But, but look, give, give those who are saying it some credit. Assume, for example, uh, for the sake of discussion, that Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, fill in the blank, uh, should, should be indicted, should be prosecuted, and the failure to do so constitutes a double standard. Just assume that for purposes of discussion. Now look at this indictment of Donald Trump. Do those people who make that complaint say, therefore, the answer is not to prosecute Donald Trump, that the response to a double standard is to move to no standard at all? A absolutely not. You know, Republicans used to believe that not prosecuting criminals led to more crime. The answer here is take the politics out of the decision and in this case, proceed with the prosecution uh, and do the same for anybody else who does anything even remotely uh, uh, like it. So then why is every single other top Republican candidate seemingly uh, critical of the indictment and uh, seemingly afraid to attack him on it? I, I don't know, honestly. You know, uh, we hear a lot these days about public opinion polls taken over the weekend. Political leadership doesn't take uh, public opinion polls as blocks of granite. They're interesting pieces of information. Political leaders change public opinion. I think it's critical uh, for those who seek to be the Republican nominee to tell Republican voters the truth about this indictment. I wish the RNC uh, could email a copy of the indictment to every registered Republican in the country. And I'd simply say, I'm not going to make a lot of arguments with them. Just read the indictment and ask yourself, if the government can prove what they allege here, Shouldn't this man go to jail? One of the things that I've been trying to get my head around in terms of the scale of 
what happened here or what's alleged here is the why. why. Why would the president take these? You know, there's a lot of theories out there as to why he would want these documents. You were with him. You saw him in action at a very close level. Why do you think? What was the intent here? Well, I, I'm not sure I can give you a good answer, but I would say this. Throughout my 17 months there, uh, it's perfectly clear that Donald Trump addressed almost everything that came before him uh, through the prism of the question, how does this benefit Donald Trump? Uh, and so I think a lot of these documents he may have just thought were cool. A lot of them he thought might be souvenirs. A lot of them he thought might be useful to him later. I can't answer the how question so until think? I see the document. But uh, well, there are a lot of theories that he could use it uh, as information against his enemies, that he could uh, give it to people in exchange for favors. We don't know. And frankly, I don't think speculating about the reasons is all that helpful. The simple fact he had the documents for any reason or no reason uh, should subject him to prosecution. Um, how do you think this ends for the former president? Well, I think if I were an innocent person, if I were Donald Trump and I were innocent, I'd be saying, I want this insult to my integrity, I use these words loosely, removed as soon as possible. I'm prepared to waive a lot of frivolous procedural motions. I want to go to trial in the next 60 days. Uh, I don't want to drag this out. I'm innocent. I can prove it. Let's go. Uh, does anybody think Donald Trump's really going to do that? I hope the Justice Department uh, really does try for a speedy trial. Because frankly, the sooner it goes to a jury and we find out their answer, whatever, whatever that answer is going to be, the better for the country. Justice delayed, as they say, is justice denied. And the court should not let Donald Trump get uh, the kind of delay I suspect he wants. Ambassador John Bolton, thanks so much for your time, sir. Thank you. Uh, this just into CNN. J.P. Morgan Chase settling a class action suit from victims of Jeffrey Epstein. We have those details for you just ahead. And we have some new polling on how this second indictment is faring for the former president politically. Stay with us. Developing right now, J.P. Morgan Chase announcing it has reached a settlement deal with Jeffrey Epstein's sex abuse victims. And the victims had brought a class action lawsuit against the bank, accusing J.P. Morgan of enabling Epstein by ignoring warnings that he was trafficking girls and young women for sex and also overlooking red flags because he was a wealthy client. The amount of that settlement has not been disclosed. Before reaching the deal, the bank insisted it did not help Epstein commit his, quote, heinous crimes. Also happening this morning, officials in Philadelphia are trying to set up alternate routes for commuters on I-95 after part of that interstate collapsed on Sunday. All lanes were closed after a tanker truck that may have been carrying hundreds of gallons of gasoline caught fire. Now, the cause of the fire is still under investigation. The National Transportation and Safety Board is sending a team out there to help in that investigation. Authorities are now working to identify if anyone was hurt in the collapse. I-95 is a critical artery on the East Coast that stretches from Florida to Canada. The destroyed portion of that highway is said to see around 160,000 vehicles daily. Officials say it could take months to rebuild. Wow. Also this morning, tributes are pouring in from world leaders after the death of former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi. The billionaire media tycoon and founder of Italy's largest commercial broadcaster went on to become the country's longest-serving prime minister. This despite a career tainted by sex scandals, allegations, and even a tax fraud conviction. Berlusconi was often considered the kingmaker in Italian politics. He had been battling leukemia. Silvio Berlusconi was 86 years old. 
And this is your miracle of the morning to some degree. Colombia is celebrating the rescue of four children missing in the Amazon jungle for 40 days. The children are ages 13, 9, 4, and one is an infant. They were lost after their plane crashed, killing their mother and the pilot. Now, officials say they survived by eating six pounds of flour, but eventually ran out of food. Their father says they survived because of their upbringing. We are indigenous people. I believe in the jungle, which is our mother. And that's why I've always kept the faith and would say that both the jungle and nature have never betrayed me. Now, medical reports say the children are dehydrated and still cannot eat food, but they are well, and they are out of danger. It is quite a miracle there. Uh, just ahead, uh, how the world is reacting this morning to the news of former President Donald Trump's indictment. And importantly, the fact that some of those classified documents had information, as we learned, related to foreign countries. And also this morning, we're learning of losses and some gains on the battlefield in Ukraine. Stay with us. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. New intelligence shows Ukraine lost 16 U.S.-supplied armored vehicles in just the last several days. Now, OpenSight website Oryx has been tracking military equipment losses in Ukraine since Russia's invasion began. Oryx says the lost Bradley fighting vehicles represent almost 15 percent of the 109 that Washington has given to Kyiv and are among almost 3,600 pieces of military equipment Ukraine has lost in the war. Still, Ukraine is making some progress, declaring it liberated three villages in the Donetsk region. Well, as Donald Trump uh, gets ready to appear in court on criminal charges this week, another former world leader is facing questions from police. Scottish investigators arrested and released former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon yesterday. Local media reporting they were questioning Sturgeon over possible financial misconduct by the Scottish National Party. Now, she was released without charge pending further investigation. Sturgeon maintains she's done nothing wrong. In this country, while Donald Trump is the first former U.S. president to face federal criminal charges, he is certainly not alone on the world stage. He joins the ranks of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Brazil's president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, and a handful of others. For a closer look at the international perspective, we're joined now by CNN chief international anchor Christian Amanpour. Christian, when we look at all of this, there's certainly been a reaction here in the United States, uh, some of it anticipated perhaps some of it not, based on just how detailed this indictment was. How is this playing overseas, especially given that those details include references to materials that you know, could compromise foreign relations and, and detail some potential vulnerabilities for allies? Well, exactly. Matters of national security, allegations of, of violating espionage laws, these are all very, very serious. And clearly that is being reflected in the foreign coverage uh, all over, certainly over the UK, France, Germany, all the US allies uh, you can see in the press. This has been a story for the past weekend. As you correctly point out, though, the rest of the world, and I'm talking about democracies now, elected democracies with the rule of law, independent judiciaries, they have held many, many of them, many American allies uh, have held their ex-leaders, some even current leaders, to account when there are serious allegations, whether it's in this regard, as Trump is facing, or whether in terms of financial misdoings, tax fraud and the like. As you know, the Prime Minister of Israel is under criminal investigation right now, uh, and there have been 
previous uh, prime ministers and leaders of Israel. The same in France. Two former presidents uh, were accused and convicted uh, of crimes re relating to economic and financial uh, misdoing in South Korea, in Japan. I mean, really, it does go on. And you mentioned Nicola Sturgeon, very famous woman, head of former head of the Scottish National Party. Now, she says she's got done nothing wrong. She has not been convicted. She's not even, uh, you know, sort of not just convicted. She hasn't been charged with anything. And she she's been released. The former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, he has not been accused of any um, current f uh, crimes, but he is under very, very strong censure by his own party on the ongoing uh, allegations regarding did he violate COVID rules during the pandemic lockdown periods. You know, Christiana, it's a great point. This isn't something that, that is only happening here. It's, it's happened throughout the world and in democracies and allies. Um, one of the NATO allies uh, is Hungary. Allies might be a little bit of a strong term at this point. But I was struck by, by Viktor Orban's response, putting out a tweet saying, your fight is a good fight, real Donald Trump. Uh, never give up. Um, look, there's a lot going on behind the scenes and a lot of history here. What was your response, though, to that well, it's really actually very interesting, this, because you have different types of politicians. So Viktor Orban is a classic populist, just like Boris Johnson is, just like Donald Trump, Trump is. And during the Trump presidency, the populists did rally around him, including President Putin, nationalist populists. And so they have always been, even throughout his presidency, much more sympathetic to him than perhaps uh, other leaders who recoil against these sort of, you know, populist Populism, the, uh, the martyrdom that these people do invoke, the fact that they say it's me against the establishment and without me you're all, you know, going to hell in a handbasket, which is pretty much what they all say, including Viktor Orban, including Donald Trump, including Boris Johnson. So it's not surprising that that cadre of populist leaders um, have come out and at least verbally said that kind of thing, or at least, uh, you know, on social media. But the vast majority of uh, world leaders really realize that these are very serious possibilities that can happen. Whatever they do in office or out of office can come back to haunt them if there are credible charges uh, done usually by bipartisan investigative committees and then put to in the United States. You have grand juries. Over here, it's somewhat different. But these are credible charges that are put to uh, a so-called jury of the peers uh, to see whether charges can be leveled and whether they can go to trial. And as I say, around the world, this is kind of de rigueur. It's true that in the United States, it's the first time such federal charges have been leveled. But many here have also said Donald Trump, it appears, had it coming. As you know, this is not the first of the charges leveled against him, the most serious. And the 37 charges include really serious charges. But, you know, you've been reporting on all the uh, other legal woes that he's got himself into. How important is this, too, in the grand scheme of how the United States builds itself on the world stage. And I'm talking not only about as the beacon of democracy, but also when it comes to justice and how justice is carried out and how the rule of law is applied and whether it is applied to everyone equally. Well, 
the common uh, sort of clarion call is that the law applies to everybody. Nobody is above the law, not even the highest elected leaders. And this is what we're seeing played out, as I said, whether it's in Israel, in Taiwan, in South Korea, uh, in France, in, in Berlusconi, who's just passed away. He himself was eventually convicted on tax fraud and he had to do com community service. Um, so, so these are very, very serious things. And the rest of the world wants to know that the nation that is a superpower and that holds itself up as the world's leader in terms of democratic uh, and institutional, um, uh, you know, morals and values also needs to be abiding by it. I think that the important thing also is to, to, there's a slight difference between Trump and the others. Even though Boris Johnson is now talking about how he's being martyred by a kangaroo court, how he's innocent, he has not managed to get any like-minded or, or a quorum of like-minded uh, um, MPs or indeed voters to come out and, and support him or to, to you know, to, to follow his lead. But Trump has had this problem. Remember back in January 6th, obviously, and people are concerned in the United States and watching very closely from abroad whether he will rally another dangerous group of people who don't care about established institutions and who believe what their leader tells them uh, outside that courthouse in Miami. We'll be watching for all that. Christiane, always good to have you with us. Thank you. Well, CNN crews are standing by at the former president's golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. Again, he's expected to leave that property, make his way down to Florida, to the Miami courthouse, where we also have our teams ready to go. He is scheduled to make that first court appearance tomorrow. Also reporting, of course, from the White House. What is the strategy, strategy when it comes to President Biden and commenting or not on Trump's indictment? Stay with us. This is CNN's special live coverage. Witch hunt, witch hunt, scam, hoax. It's called election interference, and they're doing the best they can with it. Well, the former president going with a little Mad Libs there, wasting no time <laughs> slamming the indictment and trying to capitalize politically. It's a playbook, and it may be working with some Republicans. New polling from ABC News finds that they overwhelmingly view the charges as political, and when asked if Trump should have been charged with the crime, 35% of overall voters said no. That was almost double among Republican voters. Back with us, Audie Cornish, John Miller, Sarah Murray, we're almost done, guys, but I really enjoy having you around <laughs> me constantly. It's a lot of fun. Um, Audie, the view seems to be, we know how this is going to be. This is like every other time. There's a playbook. There's a core group. He won't lose his 35%. Um, tell me something different that interests me. <laughs> well, that's your cynical journalist speaking. Wow, harsh. Uh, sorry, Not but untrue, true. But harsh. Um, that's only, I think, maybe the second poll. CBS had another poll that yeah. was sort of indicating some shift. I would rather wait to see what it looks like by the end of the week. Remember, uh, the former president has plenty of time to speak publicly. That is not traditionally like helped him in terms of once it gets into mainstream ears. And I think a lot depends on how the next 48 hours play out, um, how he reacts in his comments, um, and how the media sort of uh, works with him in a way in that. If you take his whole speech and then he spends half the speech bashing Trump, that's just free airtime campaign speech smuggled in through the Trojan horse of your uh, indictment. So I think it'll be interesting to see how he uses the time and then how the rest of the ducks, so to speak, in the party follow. Mm -hmm. I think in those remarks, too, it'll be interesting to listen for how he's using that time and just how 
far in he's going on going after the Justice Department, which we heard some of over the weekend. This is not a new narrative for him, railing against the Justice Department, using all the greatest buzzwords, which are available for your Mad Libs, as pointed out by Phil Mattingly. But, but seeing how, how much of that is picked up as well and, and how that plays into what we hear from others. So I'm thinking specifically of Republicans and those who we haven't heard from yet. Yeah, I mean, look, in general, it's not a great sign when you already have a predetermined playbook for how you're going to deal with an indictment. This is Donald Trump's second time around. We sort of know what we're going to see from his speech. And we know what we're going to see the staunch Republican supporters do, which is rally to his defense and call this a political prosecution. I think it is sort of too early to know how voters are going to take this all in. And one of the things that we haven't seen, and I don't know if we will see, is people really hammering Trump on this. I mean, the attack ads really write themselves when you have sound of Donald Trump as a presidential candidate in 2016 talking about the need to protect classified information, and then you have photos of these classified documents all over the floor in Mar-a-Lago. And those moments are in the indictment, yes, too. In I the mean, indictment. they're quoted in the indictment. Yes, yeah. so you could just envision someone making that attack ad and just hammering voters over the head with it, and that does change voter sentiment. But I think the odds that we're actually going to see that in this Republican primary are pretty low. John, can I broaden things out a little bit? And the idea of, I feel like to some degree, people have gotten numb to um, assaults on institutions or, you know, a very the former president did things very differently. He did not stick to or hew to kind of the way things always were. To some degree, that's why he was president of the United States, why he won his election. When you talk to law enforcement officials, when he attacks the Justice Department, attacks the FBI, as he has for six or seven years, what do they view as the effect long term? I mean, if you look at the inventory, and it's a short inventory, we're just talking about, you know, the things from over the weekend. You've got Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, saying, you know, the Biden administration is lying, coming up with fake charges uh, about about the document hoax. President Trump is, you know, the weaponized DOJ. So that's kind of a part of the drumbeat. And then you go to Carrie Lake, who's saying, you know, you'll have to go through 75 million of us and we're card carrying members of the NRA. And then you cut to Donald Trump, who refers to the prosecutor, a a independent counsel who was appointed to operate outside the Justice Department in the name of fairness as a deranged lunatic. So we're coming out of the gate with some very high-pitched rhetoric, not a place we haven't been before. We saw the criticism of the judge in the Manhattan case and the prosecutor. Um, all of this is in the words matter department. Uh, these are surrogates. But in the chat rooms where you have people talking about violence, talking about guns, and those people who may act independently, you've got a, a dual threat here, which is one against the, the courthouse and the process, but the other is just against law enforcement, the FBI, the prosecutors. All of that's being factored into the intel gathering, and there's a lot of concern. We're basically out of time, but really quickly, what are the people that you're speaking with, those law enforcement officials who are in charge of this response and monitoring it? How concerned are they? They're very concerned, and they're more concerned about the lone wolf than they are about the large group. Something to watch. Um, Sarah, John, Audie, thank you for hanging out all morning. Definitely going to make you do this all week. We appreciate <laughs> it very much, guys. Also, a quick programming note. Be sure to join Anderson Cooper tonight for a Chris Christie town hall, CNN Republican town hall, right here, 8 p.m. Eastern. You'll see it, of course, only on CNN. Good to have all of you with us this morning. Thanks for hanging out, For the kickoff of a very busy week. Nice to be with you. This was fun. Thanks all for right, putting up good. with me. Uh, CNN News Central starts after this quick break. Stick around.
That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.